Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. And I've, I think I've said on this show the last couple days, and, and certainly on the show that I host before, before Jim is on here on CBS Sports Radio, that I recognize the massive talent of the Brooklyn Nets, but I have real concerns about their ability to work together. And I've talked about the thin-skinned nature of Kevin Durant. And I thought the last two days, I wish there was a way for me to really, really just, just make a 3D picture of, of my doubts, my concerns about KD. And why, even though I actually like him in my interactions with him, I, I like the guy. And I think he's a overwhelming talent that doesn't begin to describe it, right? Giannis, who's a two-time MVP, is, is, is talented. Steph is, is an all-timer and is talented. I'm not going to go down the list. Kevin Durant is transcendently great in a way we've never seen at scoring the basketball and just physically is amazing. And yet I have concerns about him. And he, ironically, articulated those concerns in a way that I never could have in a DM battle of ugliness in which there are no heroes between him and Michael Rappaport. And I'm going to get into it later in the show. It's not great. What he said is not great. It's not acceptable. But I think the reason that it's worth talking about is I think it offers some insight into a marvelously talented person who feels all the feels so thoroughly and is so, so thin-skinned that the range of possibilities for how he'll react when he returns to playing with Kyrie in particular and Harden to a degree is worth discussing. So we're going to hit that later in the program. There's a um, there's a bit of fear out there. There's a bit of a condition, a sports condition. It is 49ers Mac Jones panic disorder, I think is what it's called. There's just this, this overwhelming worry that your organization, Niners fans, did in fact trade not one, not two, but, but three first-round picks. This year's 12th, next year's first, the year after's first for Mac Jones. We'll see who they take at three. Some news yesterday little something that happened in, in, in Tuscaloosa at the Mac Jones Pro Day that certainly feeds those concerns. And, and why? Maybe Mac Jones isn't a mistake. Not that it'll be him. It could be. We'll hit that later in the show. Um, one of the great advantages of being on the Jim Rome Show, there are many just amazing guests, as you know, because you listen to the show every day. And we've got some good ones coming up. My guy, love me some Scott Drew, has coached his, his Baylor team to the Final Four, and Coach Drew is going to be on the program in about 15 or 20 minutes. Really excited. They play Houston in the Final Four, obviously for a berth to a national championship game. And with all respect and love for Houston, I am rooting for that Baylor team because I'm a a big Scott Drew fan. We'll talk NBA with Sam Amick. I I think one of the best NBA writers in the country. Plies his trade, does his thing for, for the athletic. In fact, I signed up for the, you know, you do the athletic, you sign up under somebody's name. I signed up under, under Sam Amick's name because with all love and respect to the other folks who are there, and I think it's like 88% of every sports writer in America now works for the athletic. I think that that's how it works. Sam, to me, is the best of the bunch. I'm really excited that he'll be on the show. Pete Alonzo, the very candid and cool first baseman for the Mets, the polar bear, will be on the program as well in the second hour. Just made some news. I love this, man. Like, this is the thing. Why can't everybody just get theirs and be happy? I I love seeing guys who, instead of going to that jealousy place, I want to get paid, say, you know what? Francisco Lindor wants to hold out. My my teammate wants money. Hell, pay him more than he's asking for. Give him $400 million. We'll we'll talk to to Pete about that. Looking forward to that conversation. And Jerry Harrison Jr., former Dodger, former Yankee, will talk some baseball with us toward the end of the program. So, I... um. I apologize if you if, if you bet on USC, and I apologize to my bank account for having done so. I was on USC. I felt good about it. I, I thought it was going to work out. And not only did USC not cover, I should actually I bet a hundred bucks. They I'm not going to let them, but 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 the people I bet with, if they were so inclined, should have access to my bank account to just take another hundred dollars from me, even though I didn't wager it, because that's how bad of a bet it was. That is how dominating dominating that that Gonzaga team is. And I was trying to get my mind around yesterday. I actually haven't been out in, in a long time until this week, and I decided because I want to take in the vibe of what feels like live sports. And I had the advantage of, of being in Southern California. There are outdoor bars. Obviously, USC and UCLA played yesterday, so I went to a bar in Venice, in Venice, California, and it felt almost like being at, at an event, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching Gonzaga, and I, I've watched the Zags play a bunch this year. It's not like it's some new experience for me, but the level of domination and, and the confidence and belief I had that that USC defense, I thought it might be an ugly game. I thought it might look kind of like the first 10 minutes of UCLA-Michigan looked. No. 
The Zab, I don't have it in front of me, but I think they scored 531 points in the first half. It's certainly what it felt like to, to me as I swallowed my pride and, and gave away some money. They are every bit as good as that undefeated record suggests they are. And I think that's part of what I've got to grapple with. I'm so used to ridiculous promise, overwhelming hype, not living up to it. I can remember I covered that Super Bowl when the Patriots were undefeated. And in retrospect, it felt inevitable the Giants were going to beat them. Not because the Giants were the better team, but you're not supposed to go undefeated anymore. Not that long ago, when the Pittsburgh Steelers were undefeated. What did they get to, guys? 10-0, 9-0? And they're, oh, the Steelers are the best team in football. They weren't. They weren't. And you can go kind of down the list. It's been a generation at the college basketball level, level since a team went undefeated and won the whole thing. And I'm there. I got it. I saw it last night. The Zags aren't just the best team in college. Basketball, they are overwhelmingly better than almost every team that has entered this field. I think Baylor is, if not in their class, I think Baylor has a puncher's chance. We'll talk to Scott Drew about that in 15 or 20 minutes. Obviously, Scott Drew's Baylor team has to beat Houston. Obviously, the Zags have to beat UCLA. But uh, Gonzaga, all, all the respect in the world, that domination of USC, a USC team that dominated a Kansas team that, again, not amazing, but full of some talented guys and coached by a pretty impressive dude. This is the instrument, really, that, that's been put together for Mark Few for his opus. And I keep waiting for the pressure to hit the Zags because that is the thing that's real. And I think it's been I think it's been amplified this year. How many games have we seen where a, a team with a chance at an upset or, or a team on the verge of being upset, not only with three or four or five or six seconds left, gets a look, but gets a really good look? Last year was or yet last night it was Wagner for, for Michigan. But you saw in that Oral Roberts game, you saw in a lot of these games, and none of these shots are going down. And maybe it's a, a, a statistical anomaly. Maybe it's just you can't make all of them. I actually think that there's a tightness, that there's a pressure that's even more enhanced in college basketball in this tournament than we've ever seen. I think it's the most pressure-packed tournament, maybe in the history of the tournament, because not having the chance last year, right, having it evaporate like, like so many things did in, in the pandemic means – for any player that played college basketball last year, whether you're a Baylor Bear, whether you're part of that Zags team, whether you were an upperclassman on that Michigan squad, and, and Michigan fans, like, incredible run. USC fans, like incredible run. I know that the heartbreak is hard to get past and to see what a, what a great season. But for all those players in this tournament who were a part of a program last year, particularly the programs that, that, that have made these runs, when that chance went away, that makes this feel that much more important. You had something taken away from you. It's one thing to lose a game. It's another thing to never get to play. Ask those poor kids from BCU who didn't get to compete th this time around. And I think that's part of what you've seen. That UCLA-Michigan game was 4-4 four to four almost at the 10-minute mark of the first half. A at a certain point, I, I think actually after the 10-minute mark, UCLA was on pace to score 16 points in an Elite Eight game. And Michigan, who we thought would be the superior team, who was the one seed, weren't able to pull away. Michigan should have been up in that in that game 21 or 25 or 28 to 4. That game should have been over in the first half of the first half. And it wasn't because those two teams were tight. Those two teams had massive nerves. USC got their doors blown off at the very beginning of that game. The Zags jumped all over them and never looked back. Every, we've seen Baylor. I'll talk to Scott Drew about this in a few minutes. Scott, that Baylor team in that last game that got them here had multiple stretches where they couldn't get the ball in the basket. That's not overwhelming defense. You watch these games. There was just a tightness in these players. There was a nervousness. You would see they're sort of running sets, and then they just kick the ball back out with a 30-second shot clock other than Gonzaga. And I think that's the really interesting thing and the thing that I missed. It's the one team so far, and they've blown everybody out, so, so maybe that's a correlation, who hasn't looked nervous. And they should be the most nerve-wracked team of all of them. That is the only one seed I can think of in NCAA history that feels like a Cinderella story. That I was nervous. I wanted USC to win, right? That's the weird thing about sports gambling. I bet on USC. I'm at a bar, although I'm at a bar outside with a bunch of UCLA fans. They weren't exactly cheering for USC. They were cheering the other direction. And I was nervous for the Zags because I like Mark Few, because I like that program, because I respect their history, and because 
all of us who love sports have had some drought, whether it's lasted 100 years like it did for my Cubs or just a couple years if you're lucky enough to have been born into a different sports clan where we just can't get it done and we feel that pain. And that's been the Zags. That's a great program that's been great that hasn't been able to get over the hill. And I think there's only two things I think that, that with all respect to UCLA, and I don't want to sleep on what you've done and the run that you've made, and I recognize not just – the games that you've won, but you had to win the play-in just to get here. Against Michigan State, obviously pretty good program, pretty good tradition. But I think there's two forces that, that can stop the Zags. I think the second most likely force that, that stops that Gonzaga team, I'm done betting against them, by the way, is Baylor. And, and Baylor's got to get there. I, I get it. But if Baylor can play, I don't like the idea of a perfect game, but if they can play one of their better games, if they can play at, around their best and hit a bunch of three-point shots, I think they can compete with Gonzaga. And the other thing that I think can beat Gonzaga is, is Gonzaga and, and the human nature, the reality of what it feels like, that pressure. Every one of these games feels different. And, and having had the opportunity, and I'm fortunate to have covered a bunch of these tournaments, there aren't many sporting events where I feel nervous as a journalist sitting right in the stands watching the game. A, an elimination game of, of an NBA, of an NBA finals, it's, there's so much nervous energy that, that it hits you like a wave. But it doesn't really hit until the end. Same thing for, for a World Series. And, and maybe big at-bats at the end of games. There's a, sort of a, there's a nervous energy that, that comes. And even Super Bowls don't, don't feel that way until the very end of the game because there's so much other things going on. But it is pure fear and nerves and, and, and that you know your hairs stand up when, when you're at an NCAA tournament game. And it increases by five or tenfold as every game advances. I'll be curious if Gonzaga which now is, and they were clearly before, I've just, my eyes have been opened, whether or not the reality that they are markedly better than everybody else, and they have a history that they haven't lived up to, but they're trying to, whether that weighs on them on them eventually. And, and the other thing that I want to say before we get to, before we get to Scott Drew, and, and I don't want to hate on the, the fact that it wasn't a great game. I'm talking about the second one. Really, neither game were overwhelmingly amazing, although UCLA against Michigan was a great ending. And, you know, Michigan had a chance. Both those teams had trouble scoring at the beginning of the game and the end of the game. That's nerves, as, as we've talked about here on the Jim Rome Show. Bill, Bill Ryder filling in for, for Jim. Great ending, though, right? Michigan got from the left side a great look. You had a, you had a beat to kind of set yourself, and it was an air ball. And you got the rebound. Michigan got the rebound and just couldn't even put up a shot that approximated something in the region of, of the rim. But the other takeaway for me from that, there's there's two. One, those teams, and again, congratulations to the Bruins, and maybe I'll eat some crow on this too. I, I don't think so. They're just not in the same class as Gonzaga. They're, they're just not. That Those were two teams at a very different level, at a USC level, which is why the Zags didn't just dominate USC. The Zags opened for a reason as the biggest favorite in the history of a Final Four game. They are something in the neighborhood of, I think it's 16-point favorites. The number's been moving a lot. I saw as low as 13 and a half, and I saw 15 and a half, and I think it was 16 as I was sitting down. And then here's the other thing. I'll just share my personal experience because we are, I think, getting back to normal at some point. Uh, we have vaccines that are that are being that are being administered around the country. We had good news today that I think it's children 12 to 15. I have a, a soon-to-be 12-year-old daughter, so it's great. The Pfizer vaccine uh, is shown to be in, in in a pretty good sample size of trials, absolutely effective with kids we can glimpse some really good news, right? I was out with a buddy of mine who, um, who works for the Lakers and is an NBA guy, and he was just talking from an NBA perspective. I said, when's the next time you think there will be games and it'll be full of fans and I'll be taking my kids? And he said six months to 12 months, 100% normal NBA experience. And I got a taste of that last night. It was a bar. It was a random bar in Venice, California, and it was outside. But it was really cool to be watching an amazing event, or at least a dramatic event in that UCLA game, surrounded by UCLA fans. My buddy was rooting for Michigan, and the energy and the anxiety and the joy. I felt like I got to reach out a little bit and just and touch what's coming in sports. And it was a it was a hell of a good feeling. Are you craving some great protein after a good workout? Of course you are. Except this time, don't make a shake. Don't eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Well, it's awesome. And because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender, it's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. And on top of that, Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can, in fact, taste it in every single bite. I mean... 
Who wants dried, rough beef in a bag? Nobody. Old Trapper is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned, Teriyaki, Peppered, Hot and Spicy, if you need a little extra zing. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, reach for a bag of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? But how gracious of Scott Drew, that head coach, who you would imagine is probably a pretty busy guy right now, uh, making time to join us here on the show. Coach, let me just start here. Thank you and congratulations. I know there's work to do, but congratulations to you and your and your guys and that program on what is so far an incredible, incredible run. Well, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure being on your show with you. Uh, you know, uh, uh, when we were building the Baylor basketball program, you, you came in and you helped uh, make sure we were doing things right and uh, uh, helped lay that vision out for us. So I remember those early years when you came in and believed <laughs> in us. So thank you very much. No, I, it's, been, it's been amazing to watch you guys do what you're doing. And I'm curious. I, obviously, you have a lot of work to do. You have a very tough game come up against Houston. How, how long do you just let your, your guys and let yourself and your staff – party, celebrate, kind of feel what is a pretty amazing historic thing. Well, I, I, I can tell you that uh, we had the 24-hour rule, and we needed it because uh, uh, I stayed up till about 5.30. I think everyone else stayed up till at least 4 to 6, somewhere in that area. And you know, with the phone nowadays, you have so many people reaching out, and you want to get back to them and thank them for all that they've done. And uh, uh, So we didn't get much sleep, but last night was a good night's rest, and now we're ready to focus on uh, Houston. And the good thing with Houston is we have Coach Brooks on our staff, and his dad is on the Houston staff. So uh, a lot of uh, uh, common uh, um, uh, friendships, relationships, a lot of our players played AU basketball, high school basketball against or with uh, Houston players. So uh, know each other. We are, we're always cheering for U of H because of Coach Brooks. And uh, personally, I, uh, I really appreciate Coach Sampson. I coached against him when he was at Oklahoma. And then uh, uh, since that time, uh, he's always been really gracious. I've learned a lot from him, respect uh, uh, what a great coach he is. So, uh, and, and it's great to have uh, two, two schools from uh, the state of Texas in the Final Four and great representation because there's so much good uh, basketball in the state, so many talented players. And uh, over the last 15 years or uh, close to 20 years now, the state has really poured a lot of money into uh, the basketball programs. I know the AAU program is really good. So hopefully in the future we'll have more and more schools represented from the state of Texas. Scott Drew here here on the program. Uh, Coach, I, I don't know that I've ever asked you this on the radio about, about what you inherited, because obviously that's a long time ago, and that was a very mm-hmm. ugly time in, in, in Baylor's history, and, and you, now it's something very different and very beautiful. But, but I want to, because I spent a lot of time on this show yesterday just really diving into the degree of difficulty of the job you inherited and, and the ugliness beyond basketball that you were charged with fixing. Do you allow yourself, even though that's almost 20 years ago, have you allowed yourself to look back and just take stock of how in the world you took a program that was literally in shambles and have now made it a a program that's a perennial winner and in a Final Four? Well, I, I can tell you that uh, uh, when you first take over a program, you have so much to do, and you're just constantly moving forward. But uh, what, what I what I have done is uh, made sure that we've uh, uh, stayed in contact and thanked all the people that helped build this program from from, from those first couple years, those lean years. Uh, I mean, when half your team are walk-ons. Uh, people that chose to stay and be a part of the program and lay the foundation uh, for the future. And that's why we're where we're at now. So uh, uh, seeing us win the first conference championship in 71 years, uh, get to the final four for the first time in 71 years. Uh, that's, that's a direct reflection of all the work that those guys have put in all Baylor nation and the fans that have supported us all the years to get to this point. And you, you know, coaches want consistency from players and, and, with our program, uh, couldn't be more pleased with the consistency we've had since 2008. Uh, us, Kansas, maybe Michigan State are the only Power Five schools that have won 18 or more a year. Uh, we've been ranked number one three of the last five years. And again, if it wasn't for those early years and people believing us and staying behind us and our administration and our athletic director supporting us, we wouldn't be where we're at today. And obviously people in the media like you that believe what we're doing and uh, have been there uh, throughout as well. 
Scott Drew here on the show. I, I, I owned it yesterday. I didn't believe until I came down to Waco and met you and the staff for the first time 10 years ago. And, and, and you know, you know that is seeing something with your own eyes. You, you actually see it, see it clearly. And, um, and here you are. And I'm curious, coach, because obviously no opportunity last year to have a tournament that did not at least last year, benefit your program. Now some, some guys came back. But that's, you know, does that enhance the pressure? Just the combination of of what you had to build, how long you've been at Baylor, the expectations of being a one seed, all the accomplishments you just walked us through, and the fact that, that a lot of the young men that are playing with you didn't have a chance last year. Have you, have you gotten closer to the ultimate goal? Have you felt more pressure in this run, just as a coach personally, than you have in the past? Actually, um, what we've all felt is a lot more thankful and uh, uh, appreciative. And what I mean by that, until something's taken away, you don't realize. I mean, March Madness is something everyone dreams about, but you never dream about it being taken away. And last year, we were on the verge of being a number one seed, first time in school's history. And when that was taken away and everyone chose to come back so they could have a chance to be a part of March Madness. Uh, I know one of our GAs was on the team last year, Obin, and he's cutting the net down, and he's cutting the net down. He's like, this is for Freddie and Devontae. And those guys that didn't have a chance last year and they returned for this year, we've just been that much more appreciative and can't thank the NCAA enough for putting the bubble together and allowing us to have the tournament um, because at the end of the day, it is such a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And the best team doesn't always win, as we know. It's a 40-minute game. The NBA's 4-7. If you wanted the best team to win, we'd have four or seven games, and uh, uh, that's what makes it so exciting. But being able to be a part of it and having that opportunity, I know we're really thankful. Uh, Pressure-wise, uh, I think that's how I would would spin it, and I think that's how our guys feel. Coach Scott Drew here on the Jim Rome Show. Scott, um, that Arkansas game, I mean, you guys got up, I think, as 18, and they give them credit. They didn't quit. They cut that lead. They made some runs. And there were several stretches there where your guys just just had trouble making making buckets. It just you know two, three, four, five minutes where the offense mm-hmm. just had some had some struggles. What are you saying to guys? Like take us behind the curtain a little bit. What are you saying when a team cuts that kind of lead and the offense is stalling a little bit to your guys in those moments in, in timeouts and just times on the sideline with them? Well, I think, first of all, we prepared them going into the game, and we knew Arkansas, Coach Musselman, uh, the way Arkansas plays, uh, well-coached, they're going to go on runs. So regardless where it's at, up, down, um, there's gonna, it's going to be a game of runs, and that's that's the style they play, which has uh, been so successful for them. So our guys were prepared for runs. And then at the same time, we do have a, a mature group, an intelligent group where, uh, when, when, when things aren't going well, we're not pointing fingers. Uh, it's, it's everybody, okay, what do we need to do? How can we buy in? How can we help? It's much more like that than a younger, more immature group that, that gets rattled easy. And that's a big reason why we've been so successful, why we won 23 in a row last year. Um, actually why we've been the winningest team in the Power Five the last two years is because, the maturity and uh, uh, the toughness of this group. Scott Drew here on the Jim Rome Show. Uh, Scott, you have to play who's in front of you. And so Houston has not played a, a team yet that's not a double-digit seed. And that's just, that's never happened before. That's no criticism of, of Houston. That's that's who's been in front of them. Different story for you guys. You had to go through a Villanova team that's won a couple national championships the last few years. And, and your guys, the best three-point shooting team in the country, had an off night at least in terms of three-point shooting. You had to play that Arkansas team that made a run. And Mitchell was in foul trouble for, for a huge chunk of the game. I'm curious if that road, those struggles, those challenges, you think, provide your team an advantage, just what you've been through when you go into that Final Four game against Houston. Well, I think uh, um, that that's what makes March uh, uh, so special. And as we know, that seed number, um, uh, 11, 12, whatever it is, it, it's, it's, it doesn't matter once you step on that court. And I think, uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, Houston uh, has had tough games, and they've had to beat good teams. We've had tough games, had to beat good teams. Uh, I, I know um, – with us, uh, Wisconsin was also uh, a dog fight. They had four guys that were um, fifth-year guys that didn't want to didn't want to uh, go home as well. So I, I think no matter who you play, uh, it, it definitely uh, is survive in advance. And Houston's been able to do that. We've been able to do that. So much respect for the teams we played. And uh, one thing uh, uh, that you love about March Madness is teams that you haven't seen as much about 
uh, and then you watch them play and you prepare for them and you're like, you respect them that much more because you know how good they are. So every game that you win, every game that you play is a great game in the NCAA tournament. Right now, one thing with us in Houston, it'll come down to who's, who's best on that day for 40 minutes or 45 or how long it takes. Scott Drew here on the show. Uh, Scott, you, you, not only are you here now on the Jerome Show, you were gracious enough, I think last Friday, just a few days ago, to be on, on the program with me that I host before Jim's show in the mornings. And, and you said something, and we played the clip, I think, on Monday, and it, it turned out to be so prescient. You talked about how that you just can't always make shots. And there are going to be teams times where teams don't make shots, including teams like Baylor, who is the best three-point shooting team in the country. And you referenced the defense, and now the defense is better than perhaps people people know, maybe better than it's ranked in Ken Palm or other places. And that's certainly been true as we've watched those games since you and I talked last. Can you just give us a sense of where you think that that defense is, and maybe why the casual fan didn't understand how good you guys could be defensively? Uh, appreciate the question. And uh, uh, I, obviously, I knew that we'd struggle shooting. I didn't know it'd be three for nineteen against Villanova that bad. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you, you got to win when you can't make shots. And our defense going pr- uh, prior to the pause was top three in the country. And then we had a three week pause. We came back and we dropped to as low well as forty four. And uh, I. I once we lost in the Big 12 tournament, we were able to have some practice days, and I thought that really helped us. And our, our defense has now climbed back up to, I think, 27th. And are, are we uh, the 27th best defense? No, I think we're a top five defense. And I think uh, uh, um, as we continue to play, hopefully uh, that will show and continue to improve and get better. Now you're playing against great teams and great offenses, and uh, sometimes they make tough shots. Uh, but I think uh, every coach agrees you just want to not give them uh, a good look and you want to uh, have them score in a way if a guy's a shooter, make him a driver. You know, if he's a driver, make him a shooter. Make things as tough as possible. But uh, the teams that are left, they've made plays, and uh, uh, you got to be good on both ends to advance. Coach, you you, uh, you referenced Kelvin Sampson, who's a remarkable coach as well. Uh, great story for him and his program. What do you know about Houston as it relates to what they do well and what, what you need your team to do well to try to come out on top of that game? Well, they're, they're an elite defensive team. I think uh, second, in, uh, uh, second in offensive rebounding and, and uh, Coach, Coach Sampson's phenomenal getting his teams to compete on the glass. Uh, defensively, uh, top five in the country and uh, a team that uh, you have to beat. They're not going to beat themselves. Um, a lot of toughness, a lot of grit. Um, he, he maxes his guys out. They they reach their ceilings playing for him. He's a tremendous coach, and they, they have a great program. So, again, with Coach Brooks on our staff and his dad on Houston staff, we got the utmost respect for him and uh, uh, excited for uh, uh, two two tough teams to compete and play. And uh, uh, hopefully it's a, a, a fans enjoy watching a great game. I mean, you guys are there in Indian in, in, in a sort of bubble. Do, do, do father and son get to have dinner together? Is like, I, I love you, Dad, but I'll see you in two weeks. Like, no. Well, you, you have your own schedules and you stay with your own teams uh, for social distancing reasons and whatnot. But obviously you see each other passing in the halls. Now, Coach Brooks told his dad that after Tuesday he's not speaking with them. It's strictly business. <laughs> Um, I told I told Papa Brooks that's not my rule. I see him, I'm a hug him, I love him. So, <laughs> but but uh, uh, I know it's interesting. They're trying to figure out which family members are going to be wearing red and which ones are going to be wearing green because that determines where they sit, right? <laughs> right. right. Well, I'll, you know, none of my business. But you know, it's not. But family Brooks, it's just if you're if you're wondering what the guy filling for Jim Rome thinks, go green. That's just my little it's my little it's my little <laughs> suggestion. Um, Scott, I, I've known you for a while. I, I've seen what you've done this program. It's awesome. I love it for you. I, I love it for your kids. I, I love it for Waco. And it's really nice. I, I get like how nice it is of you to make time to do this. So thank you. I know you got to get back to work. I will be rooting for you. The whole Ryder family is rooting for you. And I really uh, appreciate you. And I'm really happy for you. Well, appreciate you coming down uh, all those years ago and helping make sure that we, we got this program up and running. And uh, uh, you're always welcome in Waco. So appreciate you.
When you call a Dell Technologies advisor, you are talking to somebody who is not waiting for their turn to speak. No, they actually want to hear what you have to say. They're focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Our advisors listen so you know your small business needs have been heard. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. I wasn't sure if I was going to read you this um, this Kevin Durant explosion of anger and, and insecurity that he directed at, at uh, Michael Rappaport, but, but I'm going to. And nobody here covers themselves in glory. There is no good guy in this fight. And the whole Twitter mob thing, you own Rappaport. If you're one of those people picking up your Twitter pitchforks and jumping on either one side, you are a follower and you need to calm down. You need to think for yourself and you're missing the point. The reason that this is relevant, other than the fact that Kevin Durant explodes a lot of homophobic slash misogynistic garbage in Michael Rappaport's direction, is Durant's complicated, man. I actually like Kevin Durant in my limited interactions with him. If by some chance he's watching the Jim Rome show on CBS Sports Network right now or listening on CBS Sports Radio, probably going to like him less when he feels all the feels and either goes on a burner account or maybe in his, in his own name. I guess, you know, that, that's progress. You, you swear words we'll get to in a second. But let's just, let's not get it twisted. I'm not right into Michael Rappaport's defense. I do think it showcases a thin-skinned reality for, for Kevin Durant that is absolutely backed up by his own history that calls into question whether or not he can handle the weight of what's coming in Brooklyn. Look, before there were super teams, LeBron James, who is mentally tough in the extreme and, and makes Kevin Durant look like, like a four-year-old by, by comparison as it relates to sort of mental acuity and maturity in these moments, LeBron James was broken by the pressure of what they created in, in Miami. And their, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, their talent clustered together I think had a similar ratio, overwhelming ratio to the teams they had to play because there weren't super teams. Dirk was the one star on that team. Derrick Rose was the one star on that team. Yeah, the Nets are the most talented team in basketball, sure, but you've got AD and LeBron James together. That's a pretty good cluster of talent. You've got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George together. That's a pretty good cluster of talent. I won't go through the entire roster of every team in the National Basketball Association, but it's different now. And LeBron couldn't handle it. And you think Kevin Durant's going to handle it? I doubt it very much. I'm going to read this to you. But I'm also just first going to read you a tweet from um, a comedian named Ian Carmel. No carms, no foul. Because I just want to set the proper context for the right view on how you should view both Kevin Durant and Michael Rappaport in this exchange. And it is this. This Kevin Durant-Michael Rappaport thing is a story so devoid of heroes that AMC is probably going to pick it up and win like 15 Emmys. That is 100% correct. All right. Here we go. I can't use all the language, but I'm told I can use... Uh, the B word. So, Lori, I know you're watching this at home with Henry, my, my eight-year-old son. Henry, I love you. It is time to go play Legos and, and, and you know, turn off the TV. C come back come back to CBS Sports Network in a few minutes. So, by the way, Rappaport, again, yeah, thin-skinned, not exactly the uh, the, the paragon of, 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 um, of being upright and, uh, and, and classy and not feeling all the feels all the time. But what he tweeted is not that big a deal. Kevin Durant did a... Did a post-game interview. He was very sensitive. That's what KD does. And Rappaport tweeted, KD seemed deeply in his feelings with the NBA on TNT crew after the game. Damn it, he's super sensitive about everything. Don't do the interview. That is not, to me, the end of the world. That is not a Cassis belly. That is not a nuclear bomb that has been sent off in Kevin's direction and besmirched his honor so thoroughly we have to have some modern version of the duel in Twitter DMs. But that's what we got. Here's Kevin Durant responding. The first one, you a bitch. Okay, uh, we got a little response here from Michael Rapport. I won't, I won't read you. Just do the bleeping interview. Goes and uh, and then Kevin goes on. I did the interview. You private part head. Although he didn't say, you know, he didn't say private part head. Tell your daddy Chuck to be better at his job and frame his questions better. He gave me two options for that dumbass question: yes or no. Can I just pause here to say Kevin Durant can't take questions from Charles Barkley? Charles Barkley's in the Hall of Fame, man. Charles Barkley's the best broadcaster, certainly in basketball. The fact that Charles Barkley isn't some sycophant who asks you everything you want doesn't make Charles Barkley the bad guy. It goes on. I heard it all before, you misogynistic word. Chuck doesn't need you as a security, you pale, pasty, homophobic, homophobic 
bitch. He didn't actually say homophobic. He described actions that were they, say, put in words by LeBron James. We'd have our mob pitchforks out or anyone else for that matter. I don't like, Ke I don't like Kevin Durant gets a pass. Hey, here, here's some breaking news. Don't be racist. Don't be misogynistic. Don't be homophobic. It's not okay. It's not okay. And the other thing becomes... When you have a righteous vision that you want to sell on social justice or, or, or on treating men and women the same way or not being homophobic, you can't just, you know, be like, oh, that's what I believe. But I'm going to put that aside because I'm going to tear into this group. I'm going I'm, I'm to practice this ism. Get out of here, man. All right, let's go on. <laughs> so after he told him that he was a, um, a, a pale, pasty, homophobic, homophobic bitch, uh, Kevin then decided, and I had this vision of, of Durant, like in his room, in, uh, one of two, in his apartment, Either with like a drink and sort of laughing or reaching for a Kleenex and wiping away the tears because he feels all the feels and he's simultaneously looking at all the eggs who have said mean things about Kevin Durant and then just dropping it into a pile of other wet Kleenex because KD is so thin-skinned, every comment that's ever been directed in his direction is something that has to be addressed and, and makes him feel this big. Dude, grow up. What are you in high school? Are these guys in high school? Meet you behind the lunchroom to fight you. Okay, he goes on. I'm not making this up, but this is actual Kevin Durant stuff. I swear I'm going to spit in your face when I see your dirty ass. Bet your life on it. I can't wait till Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving um, throws some shade in, uh, in Durant's you know, way in a game when things go badly or at a press conference, and he turns to Kyrie and says, I swear I'm going to spit in your face right now in your dirty ass. He goes on. Meet me uh, on West 17th tomorrow at 10. He's actually asking Michael Rappaport to meet and fight him. Or better yet, what's your address? 10 a.m. at Catch Take on the corner. Meet me there, kitty cat. And it's not really kitty cat, and he's not actually using a euphemism for a furry animal. It's something else, but you can you can use your imagination. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Rappaport goes on, you know, little little smack talk. And then Durant continues. You a bitch for even caring how I do an interview. All you do is homophobic other men for attention. Trump didn't pay attention to your sorry ass, and now you want to use everybody else to get views and laughs. Your life is a joke, you bleeping, pale, homophobic, homophobic action. Go get some sun. It's bleeping with your brain. Piece of poop. Didn't actually say, didn't actually say poop. Uh, there's more. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to make the point that I, that I want to make, and it's this. And I want to—I don't want to hear that Michael Rappaport shouldn't have released it, and it's private. It ain't private. I got a radio host in LA who makes fun of me all the time. Two like pretty good rules. One, who cares? Who cares what that guy says? Who cares what anybody says? Like, grow up and get over it. And two, if I'm dealing with someone in the media who doesn't like me, I'm not going to pretend that sending them a text message or an email or a private DM is going to be private. If Michael Rappaport or anybody else jumped into Kevin Durant's DMs and directed this kind of garbage, homophobic if that were the case, sexist if that were the case, racist if that were the case, Kevin Durant would put it out there. That's the world that we live in. So I don't want to hear the whole, like, Rappaport shouldn't have done this. There's no heroes here. There's no heroes in this conversation. To me, the insight is that Kevin Durant is so concerned. Who, no offense to Michael Rappaport, but who cares what Michael Rappaport has to say? S seriously. You're rehabbing from an injury. You are the catalyst when you return for the most promising and interesting, but I think volatile team in the NBA. You have a history of actually being put out when people chanted Steph for MVP when you play with a guy named Steph Curry who had been a two-time MVP. This is a guy who's actually done burner accounts on Twitter in order to go attack people who have eggs. Look, I'm a nobody. And I'm certainly a nobody compared to Kevin Durant, who's an absolute somebody's not the term. And I, at 43 years of, of age, know enough to know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I've had 10 years to get used to it, right? Deadspin wrote about me the first time for about one hour. It was, oh, that feels uncomfortable. And then my editor called me. This is amazing. Yeah, but Deadspin called me a total moron. I know. It's great. Traffic's up 300%. That's how it works, man. It doesn't matter what people say. I haven't looked at my, uh, at my, at my, my Twitter mentions because when I'm on the Jim Rome show, there's a whole variety. I'll look at all of them. I'll take none of them personally. And if somebody uses racist or misogynistic or sexist language, right, or whatever, brings up my family, there's a mute button. It's pretty simple. Then I'll go on with my life. This, to me, reflects a problem for Kevin Durant. 
and I know we're running out of time here. Let me leave it here. This, Kevin Durant just told us with his, with his silliness and his vapidness and his insecurity and his thin-skinned nature and the fact he went down to the same level as the guy that he supposedly is criticizing, this is why I doubt the guy. And I want him to be good. I, I like him in my interactions with him. He's a complicated human being, but he is the worst on Twitter and he feels all the feels and he's got to grow the hell up. Look to Russell Westbrook and what he said about what it means to be a real champion. Look to LeBron James, who learned to take the criticism. You don't have to love it. You just got to love yourself enough and believe in yourself enough. You stop acting like some 11th grader. Kevin Durant, grow up, dude, or the Nets are going to pay the price. I love The Athletic, but I signed up because of Sam. He's the guy that pulled me in. I wanted to read his work, so I went and did the Sam Amick code and uh, found a lot of other great stuff, too. And he joins me now. Mr. Amick, what is up, my friend? Mr. Ryder, thank you for the kind words. As always, good to be with you. Good to have you. Hey, let's um, let's dive into some of the some of the tough stuff early. Uh, you're almost certainly going to have an MVP vote. You do every year, and I've had I've had them at times. I don't know if I'll vote, but but I know that it's a really tough year to try to peg a number one, even I think a one to five. What is your what does your ballot look like right now? I know there's a ways to go, but what are you sort of projecting? Uh, first of all, I love that you asked the question because, as you can relate to as a writer, you're always trying to figure out what storyline to hit next. And, and right before you called, I, I had decided to go down the MVP road again with my next story. So that that's where my head's already at. Um, it is a really, really unique race. You know, the, when I wrote about it about a month ago, I had LeBron number one and Bede number two. You know, I forget the order from there, but there was you know Damian Lillard, Steph Curry. Um, now, because of the injury situation, it's wildly different. And I think I would have Jokic out front. I'm still in the process of, of kind of processing everything. But the other, I think, major subplot here is that Giannis Antetokounmpo, we had kind of had this unofficial thing where people were acting as if he wasn't eligible this year because, because he somehow, you know, "Quote unquote," let us down in the playoffs, uh, if that makes sense. And and now, now to me, it's like Giannis is right there. You know, the Bucks are winning. Um, you cannot ignore him, and you can't just kind of you know have this approach that because he's won two in a row, uh, it, the, the bar is somehow higher. You know, he's having a great year. So uh, LeBron and Embiid fall quickly because of the injury stuff. I think Damian is. Is still in there. I think Steph has fallen back, and I feel like I'm leaving somebody out. Harden, to me, that's the hot topic, right? Yeah, that's what I um, I do want to get your take because I've asked literally every single person that's been on this radio show, Sam Amick, the Jim Rome show, on the show I host in the mornings before this, uh, every scout, every GM. I'm just curious. It's such a wide range of answers from Howard Beck saying no, no chance to other people saying has to be number one to, to everything in between. No, I, I really don't. Um, there's, I'm not a no chancer. Um, I am a, like, could it be used against him as a, a kind of a, a separator? If there's, let's say he is a, kind of possibly the number one guy at the end of the year, but there's another person right there. Um, yeah, it could be an X factor that ends up costing him the MVP, but it's not, I don't know. I mean, I didn't love how he left Houston. Yes, it was unsavory, but I think it's a little bit of a slippery slope if we start, applying value judgments to the way you guys handle that kind of a situation. Um, my thing is that it was 14 games that he was not a member of the Brooklyn Nets, or 13, I think. I think game number 14, he was in a Nets jersey. And so on the front end, the narrative is terrible for him because he kind of, you know, uh, harpooned the Rockets in a, in a really bad way. But once he got to Brooklyn, because of Kyrie being gone at the time, Kevin Durant getting hurt. We have obviously seen him carry that team a lot more than we thought he would because it hasn't really been a super team. It's been a, a James Harden team that uh, where he's been filling in the gaps. So I think he's very much in the running, um, but but certainly you know what happened before he got to Brooklyn is going to come and you know be taken into account. Sam Amick here on the show. Uh, Sam, let me posit something to you that, that that that's been in my brain, and you you dismiss it like I'm a crazy person, which we all know that I can be, or or, or maybe it, it doesn't. Maybe it's not as um is out there as I think. I've been contemplating this same question, and I've been staring at the standings, and I I believe that Phoenix was going to be a really great team from the beginning of the season, and they are. I mean, they are really good. What are they, second right now in, in, in the standings in the Western Conference? Depending on how things move, I, I just keep asking myself, and I don't mean as the number one person on that ballot, but but 
and I know the numbers don't say this, but Chris Paul's addition to that Phoenix team has been this really interesting, I think, catalyst for what they are. And and I, I think it's just this strange, perfect fit for him and, and clearly his personality. And his, he's obviously an excellent player. Is it insane to be contemplating someone like that or Donovan Mitchell, who, again, statistically not in the same realm, who are critical pieces to teams that are really, really good, but maybe don't overwhelm when you compare them side by side with, with some of the guys we're thinking about? I mean, it's, it's not crazy, and I, <clears throat> I'm chewed on that same idea. Uh, I'm just not there. You know, my problem with Chris is that if you talk to basketball people who are smarter on the game than I am, you know, they can't even make their minds up on whether or not Chris or Devin Booker is the MVP of the Sun. Um, you know, that makes it tricky. And the same dynamic exists in Utah, where you said, Donovan, some people are going to go to Rudy right. and talk about the big man in the middle whose numbers also don't reflect a quote-unquote typical MVP. Um, I think the deeper teams like the Suns and the Jazz, you know, on, and with Phoenix, you're talking Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder and all these different role players, um, you know, and DeAndre Aiden getting better. I'm just not there. I think there's too many transcendent talents that do kind of carry the load more. That's why Jokic, to me, the Nuggets are – in the top half of the league defensively right now. And I think that's a, an X factor for Jokic because, you know, the less that people can attack him for not being a defensively dominant player, like a, uh, an Embiid or a Giannis, uh, the better odds he has of winning the MVP. So I, I just think there's too many special individual seasons happening that are not as nuanced as a, a Chris Paul or some of the other guys we mentioned. Sam Amick from the athletic Sam, Underscore Amick on Twitter here on the Jim Rome Show. I'm Bill Ryder filling in for, for Jim. Sam, you brought up Giannis, and I mean, he made me laugh, and I try not to interrupt guests when they're talking, but he made me laugh on the air where you said that, you know, supposedly he's a, you know, he's not, he's not even allowed to be under consideration, Giannis, for, for MVP because he's won two in a row. And in some ways, I think, I think the unwillingness to look directly at how great Giannis has been, at least from my perspective, might extend to the Bucks because this is a team that's near the top of the Eastern Conference standings. They're, I think they're top four or five in both offensive and defensive rating. They have the back-back MVP, and, and I don't hear that many people talking about them as, as top-level championship contenders as I think maybe you would if, if it was a team that hadn't, quote-unquote, disappointed the last few years. Now, there was a time... And it's been a while, but the you know the Pistons against the Celtics or the Celtics against Philly or even the Bulls against the Pistons, you had to fail for a while to kind of figure it out. All that rambling just to ask you this, Sam Amick, do you put that Bucks team, however many teams you have, as like top tier in that top tier? Um, I do, but I also understand why folks are, are suspect. And this is a weird analogy, but it, it's almost like you know in life in general, right? When you have somebody who you might have thought was a friend and they cross you and you kind of just decide like, man, I'm done with you until you somehow prove otherwise. And I feel like that's where we're at with the Bucks is like people believed in them and then they hit the playoffs. And it's one thing to lose, you know what I mean? It's another to lose in the fashion that they have and, and most recently against Miami where you had what was kind of widely considered a, a plucky, uh, overperforming Miami Heat team that you know came with this playbook of creating the wall for Giannis and, and just ate that team alive and left you questioning everything you thought about Giannis and the Bucks And they can't really rectify that until we're back in the playoffs. And so in the interim, it's like, oh, by the way, you might have to give some credit to that team during the regular season that we've all learned doesn't matter for their purposes, if that makes sense. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I but all it's a long-winded answer to, you know, the truth for me is that yeah, they are elite, and then you know the information we have right now, they are in the mix, and we just are watching a Utah Jazz team, for example, that that is kind of figuring it out, and so could the Bucks figure it out? They, you know, of course, you know they've stood by Mike Budenholzer, they've added pieces. I like the PJ Tucker addition, and and we'll see if they can kind of change the script when it matters. Uh, Sam Amick, we're friends here, so this is just your call, but but it can be very therapeutic to just name-check people on national radio, and this is the Jim Rome Show. So whoever that friend was that betrayed you, if you just want to get it out there, if you want to just <laughs> want to air that grievance, 
This is a this is a safe space for you. I'm just we, telling. We all know that's the, that's the only reason I'm on the show, Bill. Is you're trying to make up for that one time you crossed me? You know, <laughs> <laughs> was it a Dwight Howard moment? Like what happened? I don't. <laughs> I don't remember exactly. Sam Amick, uh, Sam Amick here on the program. So Sam, I um I just got done talking at some length about a story that I think has no heroes to say the least, and that's the the Kevin Durant Michael Rappaport. Um, private, no longer private DM exchange. I don't, I don't know if you if you followed how much you've seen this, but it was not the world's um, loveliest level of communication or even appropriate from, from Kevin Durant to, to, to Mr. Rappaport. But it just to me, again, I think Durant's an amazing talent, obviously. I, I recognize what the Nets can be. I actually like Kevin Durant. Like, I haven't interacted with the guy in a few years, but, but I've really enjoyed my conversations with him. And yet I do. I worry about the volatile mix of those stars in Brooklyn, and I worry about Kevin Durant being thin-skinned. And, and I'm curious if you think those kind of social media moments from your perspective, having covered the game a long time, can indicate a problem for a player as it relates to the basketball and the locker room, or you think it's much ado about nothing? Well, I mean, for the purposes of the team, I don't know. Um, I'm with you, though, not to get melodramatic, but, uh, you know, you kind of hinted to the fact that you've interacted with him, you've enjoyed him, and and I would say the same, you know, and I've covered him a lot, and, and it is, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. I, you know, I just, I hate, first of all, the tenor of that discussion was wildly inappropriate. I mean, there was homophobia in there. There was misogyny in there. Um, that stuff I, I don't think is, it should go unchecked by the NBA. And, you know, and I've checked in with them, and I'm curious to see what the response is going to be. Because uh, it's one thing, uh, it's not a boys will be boys kind of trash talk thing. This is, you know, this is the kind of stuff where Kevin's words that he chooses are, you know, they have an impact on fans and, and people who follow him. Now, listen, you know, Rappaport has got a long history of, of mixing it up with folks and, and, and got some blame here as well. Um, but I just, the sensitive thing with Kevin fascinates me. And, and, and I don't know, you know, when he kind of took this turn to responding to almost everything that comes his way, but he's been doing it for quite a while, you know, and he and I have had conversations about the way he's covered in the media and, and he's been, sideways on that front for a long time and um this is i think kind of an extension of that but it's a, it's not a great look and he's a hell of a kind of a, a you know i guess a, a a quandary where the man does so much good in the community and has taken his wealth and and really you know lifted up a, a lot of kids and a lot of people he's got that side of him then you have the, the side where he feels the need to clap back and anybody who kind of comes his way, it's, it's, you know, people are complicated, but this is a, definitely not a good look. I'm with you on all that. Sam Amick here on the Jim Rome Show. I'm, I'm Bill Ryder filling in here on the program. Um, Sam, I know that it's hard to guess, especially when it comes to the Lakers and injuries, but but as best you, you know, you could prognosticate, what is your level of concern for the Lakers once we get to the postseason? Right, Once we're there, what is the level of concern you have if, if you're a Lakers fan? I'm pretty high if I'm a Lakers fan right now uh, on my level of concern. I think that a couple things come to mind. Um, you know, Montrezl Harrell and Dennis Schroeder and guys like that are known commodities from the standpoint of, you know, they've done some things in this league, but they have not won championships, and, and that kind of applies to some of the other role players as well. And, you know, I think – the, the Drummond edition is, is a good one, but again, Andre has never raised a trophy. And so I, I don't know what to think of kind of their chemistry and their connectivity and their culture, really, because, you know, those guys now are obviously carrying a much larger load than they thought they would need to because of LeBron and AD being out. Uh, I just, to me, it's question marks everywhere. And uh, maybe have recency bias, but I feel like the parity is off the charts where if I'm taking the Lakers or the field, you know, I'm definitely going with the field at this point um, because, you know, LeBron is Superman, but he, he kind of showed like a couple weeks ago or last week that, you know, he does get hurt and he's going to be out for quite some time. And they are not going to have a lot of time, I don't think, to uh, to try to get it together in time for the playoffs. Sam Amick, uh, you're, you're a good man, dude. I appreciate you. I, I apologize for those Dwight Howard jokes. I did betray you. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad we could get over it. Uh, we'll be reading in the Athletic. Sam underscore Amick on Twitter. Best to your family, buddy. And I, like we all do, look forward to things being uh, wherever they're heading to the point where, where I can see you in person and, and say hello. Thank you, brother. Good to hear from you. Appreciate you, Bill. 
Good night now!